Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. Normal wine people, have you checked out Wine Access yet? They are the sponsor of this show, and they are our biggest champions in the wine industry. If you want to support this show, support them, and also support your wine collection because they have amazing wines. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Listen in the middle of the show, and I'll give you the full details. Don't miss out on this. 10% off your first order. Drew Perry is the head of production for Simpson Family Estates, a family business located in the Leelanau Peninsula of Michigan that's been around since the 1970s. Simpson Family Estates owns the award-winning brands Good Harbor Vineyards and Aurora Cellars, which make delicious sparkling whites and reds from this really unique terroir. Drew graduated from Michigan State University with a degree in viticulture and enology. He worked in Napa for a brief stint before moving back to northern Michigan to take on the challenge of cool climate viticulture in this region that I am now very excited about learning about and visiting. Drew, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on to help us learn about this wine region that honestly blew me away in terms of quality and style. I had never had, maybe I'd had like one Michigan wine, but I am all in now. (laughs) Thanks, Elizabeth. It's, It's an interesting region. We admit, those of us who are self-aware, we know who we are. We know that we're still growing. We're still babies to a large extent. I mean, that's what this region is. It's in its infantile stage. And so we're we're still getting there. But yeah, I mean, we have a lot of interesting things going on. You have to imagine that there are people in the United States, Canada, Australia, around the world who are listening to this and they don't know anything at all about the Leelanau Peninsula. Now, I have to admit... I only knew a little bit because, as I told you, my introduction to the region was through Stuart Piggott's book about Riesling. And he was the first one that I was aware of to say that the Riesling was very, very good out of Michigan. There's so much more, though, to it. I want you to take us through. This is your place. Like, where is it located? How do we get there? Talk about Lake Michigan, which I think people are aware of the Great Lakes situation. Yeah. Speaking of Stuart, I mean, in all honesty, Riesling is basically our bait. It's how we get people in. In order to actually cross that barrier, get them to try other things. But it's a unique area, and I completely understand people haven't heard of it. I wouldn't be here had I not grown up in Michigan. It's not like I would have chosen this, you know, had I gone into this profession and just chosen this it's a little more obscure, but in all honesty, it's got a lot of unique qualities. If you think about Michigan as its shape, for people who don't know, if you just hold your right hand up, and then if you just look at the top of your pinky, that's where we are. People say it's like the mitten, right? Yeah. It's like a mitten. little mitten. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, we're one of the only states who actually uh, holds up a body part in order to show people where we live. Um, <laughs> it's true. People think Michigan, obviously there's a reason why people are shocked that we can grow anything here. There's a lot of regions that are like that. They're just surprising. Like an Okanagan Valley with Finger Lakes is another one that sort of resembles us, but we're still wildly different. But yeah, you have that Lake Michigan effect and there has been a cherry industry here for a few way, way back. That's when land used to be affordable. There's a reason there's a cherry industry here, and that's because cherries can't grow here. 
that's one great thing for us, especially nowadays, is we're seeing all these cherry farms really struggle just because the market in general. We know that grapes are going to do really well on any site that cherries are growing, and especially in this area. Washington, as one example, that's a great facsimile. You have that identifier that says they can do well here because this is growing well here. Fruit trees are a good indicator because apples, yeah. if those crops are doing a little less good, yeah. grapes can, because usually the soil is not that great, which is what grapes likes. Yeah. And then if there's one thing we have, it's not great soil. I mean, one thing we're known for around here is our sandy. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> we're on the edge of Sleeping Bear National Park. So that's just a whole big dune area. Wow. That's what makes this whole peninsula really unique is it's not just the fact that it's by the lake, but it's shaped really uniquely. You have all these crazy glacial deposits everywhere that make every little spot within every vineyard completely unique. So we have vineyards all throughout the Leonard Peninsula. And it's pretty striking just how different every little spot is within each vineyard. Can you back up and talk about the climate? Because the first thing that people think is... Cold. Yes. So if we are thinking about Michigan, I yeah. think people know that it has nice summers. Chicago yeah. is really hot, but you're six hours north of Chicago, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. The the one thing tend to throw out is the whole 45th parallel concept. But I mean, right. there's a lot of things around the 45th parallel that we are not. We are not Willamette Valley. And then we're not pretending that we are. And so, yes, there is a reason that we do well, but it is just because of that lake moderation. Bordeaux is also at 45, but they exactly. are way hotter than you are because of yep. the jet stream. You have something very, very unique, which is that although it gets very cold in the wintertime, you have a good growing season, right? Yeah. Talk about Lake Michigan. It's not extremely long, but we do have a good growing season. The one thing that we have that's really nice is that actually, because we're so close to the lake here, most of our vineyards are within a half mile up Lake Michigan. And so we end up getting, because that lake is usually still pretty cool in the spring, we get a delayed bud break. So mm -hmm. that helps a ton with avoiding frost. And then we get delayed frost just because there's still heat energy in that water later on at the end of the season. So we can extend that season out. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, usually though, our, our seasons tend to be kind of just shifted farther down. You know, we're starting October 1st and we're ending first week of November. Wow. Yeah. I actually, I just had a, one of my dad's oldest friend, he's the uh, owner of Messina Hoff down in Texas. And he came up and visited me yesterday and he was talking about their harvest. He's like, yeah, we're usually done by the last week of September. And I'm like, we are considering starting it. Right. Winters are cold, but because we're right up the lake, it does help to moderate just how cold it gets. We are not freezing over as much as we used to. Whatever so happens. climate change? Yeah. Whether that's for the best or not. I mean, I know we have a lot of old timers here in the area that miss those days when it used to freeze over completely. But for me, that's great. If you're trying to make wine, it's great, obviously. Yeah. And it's, you know, we also get the lake effect snow, which is fantastic. What we rely on because we're going to be below five degrees every winter, no matter what. And a lot of those varieties are susceptible once you start getting into that range. And we rely on getting buried by the snow. We have... Really? Yeah. We need to have at least a couple feet. So we always have snow insulating the vines. And so... That makes sense. Our last uh, year that we got wiped out was 15. And it was because there was no snow to insulate the vines. 
we had orderline because no snow and really cold temperatures. That is so nuts. So underneath the snow, they go into true dormancy. Like that's one of the things you hear about Germany as the climate's warming. They're very concerned because especially Riesling needs that rest period in the wintertime. And they're concerned that it's not getting it. But you always have that, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, we we always get into into true dormancy. And I mean, we do hit our cold environment and we get a point where things could wake up. We occasionally have your, your freakishly warm March. But in all reality, things fully shut down. The one bad thing can be is, you know, say the end of November, things haven't fully acclimated at that point. If we get a sudden drop, then yeah, we can suffer the next season. But we've had a lot of variability just in these last few years. But 14 and 15 were our last years that we really got hit hard. And unfortunately, this region, believe it or not, we have kind of accepted the fact that you're going to get wiped out more than likely one in every 10 years. There's a lot of regions that used to have to accept yep. that fairly frequently. So that has to be a part of your calculation, what you're doing every year, honestly. It is very, very difficult when you're in those kinds of climates. The Loire used to have that. Yep. Champagne had a Burgundy had it. So you're saying in 15, you made no wine. Very, very little. 14 Jeez. was even worse. 14 was pretty much 100% wipeout where actually a lot of vines were dying. 15, it was, I would say, about a 90% loss. And then 16 just exploded. Those are years where you have to just get creative. We have to rely on American Appalachian and years like that because you just don't have So you buy fruit. Yeah. Does it rain a lot during the growing season or no? Not a ton, but it's not extremely dry. Every now and then we'll see a period of like three weeks where we're just really dry. And that can hurt if it happens like right after planting. But for the most part, we get a good amount of rain. We can have it a little bit of excessive rain, but it's it's not consistent year in, year out. We had like, a, let's say it was 20, we had a record rainfall, but then we will have like long periods of drought right after that. It's a little all over the map, but I would say we're definitely good when it comes to rainfall. You we don't can, irrigate. We can dry farm in yeah. theory. We're finding it harder and harder though. And that's really the timing. The last two years, we have hit completely dry May or end of May and, and through June. That's really stressful when you have just such a shallow little root zone and then those little plants are just trying to get going. I mean, we've had a lot of struggles the last few years, kind of at a point now where it's, okay, well, it's going to get you up faster. It's going to get you onto the wire a year earlier on average. So we're encouraging most people who have the ability to do it to do. To irrigate, you're saying? We don't. We, none of ours are irrigated. So we're now having to retro a lot of ours. But you've got some older vines, right? Yeah, we so do. So they probably need it a lot less. Those are deep root systems. So we don't really have to worry about those. But it's for establishment. That's after those first three years, we don't really need it. Every region, even in Europe where irrigation is illegal in most places, the first three to five years, you are allowed to water the vines yeah. to, to have them established. So it's not really that much different than any other zone. Yeah. Let's say that we love your wines, which I do, okay. and there's vintage variations. Is it wild vintage variation? Is it more in the reds than in the whites? What would you say the character of the wine is from year to year. First of all, I want to say I love wines of vintage because that's really what wine is about. It's about each year being a little different. But I wonder, is it wildly different? Like are some years going to be like fruit bombs and some years going to be nothing or what? The smaller you are, the more it varies. We are approaching being the biggest grower up here will be in the next two years. And so we have 
enough vineyards all throughout the peninsula that we do have a good amount of variation just kind of year in year out certain sites develop better than others so even in a poor vintage we have some good selection that we can work with and kind of cross blend across but i definitely think that there is a massive amount of vintage variation which can be good if you're just trying to tell a story this is honesty this is what we have to deal with and we're going to try to make the best thing possible it's an exhausting uh pitch but it's, it's reality I don't have the choice of saying it's 2019 and that's just the way it was. So too bad. I still have to try to make the best thing possible. And so right. my number one goal is I work with our vineyard team as well and kind of help design things from that point up. My goal is to get that fruit to the highest quality possible and then make sure that once we get into the winery, we're taking that one step up. We're not taking it at least one step up, we say. You, as a winemaker, yeah. where you are, yeah. from what you're telling me, yeah. you would not be a very good winemaker if you did not have some hand in the vineyard. Yeah. You have to have involvement because it's such a tricky process. Yeah. I want to talk about the land, though. I was really surprised to know that you have some really high elevation sites. Yeah. Are some of them sloped? Is it flat? Describe to us the terrain. You've said that already we're on this enormous lake. I think it's hard to explain how yeah. big Lake Michigan is. I haven't been to Michigan. Yeah. I've only seen it from Chicago. Yeah. But it is enormous. It looks like the ocean. It's a smaller. Yeah. If we could explain it to people, you can't see the other side. It is huge. No. It is really interesting that you have some sites that are up really high. Some must be on sand. Some must be on different soils. Can yeah. you talk about the attributes of terroir? Because obviously terroir is way more than soil. Yeah. So are there elevations? Are there things that are north facing, south facing? How do you work this out? Yeah. Thank you for saying that, by the way. That drives me crazy. Uh, it drives me crazy, too. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, if you really think about it, our sites, because just all shaped by glaciers passing through however many eons ago, our sites are on average at least 900 feet. Wow. And so everything is, and it has to be, especially on this peninsula. So we have a peninsula right next to us called Old Mission, which it's a little bit different because they're smaller. They're only about a half mile wide, about 18 miles long. Everything is a little more similar. The land's a little bit more uniform, but there are a lot of slopes. Leelanau Peninsula, it, because it's right off Lake Michigan itself, so it's not in a protected bay, gets a much higher degree of temperature variance of just winds coming in off the lake. And so you have to be very specific about where you're planting because if you plant in the right spot, you can grow just about anything. But I always used to tell people this story, like the first day I came to work, for Sam and Taylor, I parked in the parking lot at Aurora Cellars and it was 14 and it was negative eight degrees. And then I drove a half mile down the road, a little bit farther inland, and it was negative 23 degrees. So, this is Fahrenheit for yeah, the for yeah, the folks yeah. that think in Celsius. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, I don't know what that translates to. Um this little peninsula, we're really close to Traverse City, which is, you know, a, a big city in Michigan. Yep. Relatively yep. speaking. And I have heard that apparently the temperature variation between Traverse City and Lansing is less than the temperature variation within our little peninsula. So you have like almost half wow. the state. If you're just going straight down, it doesn't vary that much. But this little peninsula, because all its little nooks and crannies, the way the air moves through it, 
it's very unique. It makes it so that you can grow a lot of things, but then you better know your site at a time. In the Finger Lakes, mm-hmm. one of the things that the producers talk about there is it's all on slopes. Have you been to the Finger Lakes yeah. before? Yeah. Yeah. So they're all on slopes and the air kind of drains out yeah. onto the lake. So the cold air is coming off of the slopes and that really helps them a lot. Is that what you're having also in some sites? It's like a toboggan. It just, it just shoots out. I mean, even wow. I've seen vineyards where they cut one hole and maybe a tree line and then you could just see the way that cold air started to funnel and it wiped out every panel in the same shape of that tree line that they opened up a hole in just to let the cold air start. So everything started wow. through. I mean, it's shocking just how specific that air is moving. It's like that on all of our sites. Try to be very specific about where we're planting, what we're planting. And that's kind of where things start. It's just site selection and, and then just planting the right things in the right places. And then obviously we have our soils, which is a part of the whole equation. Whether it's sandy, sandy wall, there's a fair amount of clay deposits everywhere as well. It's never uniform. You have a couple of wines that are from single vineyards. I'm sure you don't make those every year. Do you make them every year? It it depends. There's certain styles. So let's say it's like a barrel fermented Chardonnay. I I try to avoid barrel fermented Chardonnay unless I feel like the vintage justifies it. And then there are certain reds. We've had years where it's it's not going to happen. And so we need to be creative. Just do something else with Frankly, people are ecstatic. You know, they're, they, I, I don't know if they just appreciate the fact that you didn't try to do something that wasn't there or, you know, you just said, no, we're going to make something that makes sense that everybody can enjoy. And it still tells that vintage variation story and it's honest to the environment. We're going to talk about winemaking in a second, but yeah. I also want to talk about the history of the region yeah. because it's old. I mean, it's old like you and I are old. Grapes have been grown here since the 70s. Yeah. The AVA started in 1982. Did they start with vinifera or did they start with hybrids? Okay. And then why did people say, we can do this? You're looking at the Finger Lakes and saying, they can do this, we can do this, or what? Again, I sort of feel like that's the closest analog because they have glacial soils. They have the deep lakes. I don't know. Tell me. So, yes, it initially started off. We had a small winery called Bosque, quirky guy who started that up, and it was all hybrids. And he stuck with that forever. And then what ended up happening is you had four people who basically came in. They were the four horsemen started this whole thing. And it wasn't seen as a serious venture, which is why it didn't just boom from there like some of these industries do, where it's like, oh, this is possible. Let's all jump in on this. Instead, they were kind of seen as a, a little bit odd. We had one guy who was who ended up being uh, solely a bubbly producer. We had Bruce, who was the, the you know, Bruce Simpson, who was Sam Taylor's dad, was one of them as well. And they all just kind of hung out together. They all just talked shop together. Bruce actually, at one point, decided he didn't want to be a part of the family cherry farming. And, and so he went out to Davis and just for winemaking and came back and said, no, I'm going to try to do, I'm going to try to do grapes here. And there just wasn't any research or any, the only university that was really doing a lot of work here was Michigan State. And all the research there said hybrids, hybrids, hybrids. And so that's what he planted. Right. And that's, everybody plans it for the first decade. It took a while. He had one winemaker out on Old Mission. His name was Ed O'Keefe, who said, I'm going to try Vanilla. He tried Reese. And it worked. And so it started getting people to kind of think outside the box a little bit and then start planning Riesling. And that kind of got things rolling. 
but it took a while for that next generation to actually hit. It had to get past just being a fun, quirky tourist industry, but that's really what that first generation was. And somebody was asked me once, what's the difference over all these years? And it's just, we have these very defined generations here in terms of winemakers. And you will not be successful here if you don't have an appreciation for the previous generations, for what they did, what they are, and basically where they failed and where they succeeded. So you're just building on top of everything. Yeah. They, they already went through it all. So now you get to figure out what it's not going to work. And then that next generation builds on that. Super nerdy question about the plant matter and rootstock. Yeah. Where do you guys get plant material from? It can't be California. <laughs> it can be. You wish it wasn't. But... Right. I mean, that's the thing. They can't possibly be able to grow it for what you need, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we have very specific clones of everything that we're looking for and, and clones on certain rootstocks that we're looking for. So we do source stuff from a lot of California nurseries. There's also nurseries in New York. We've had to swear off a few nurseries just because of a lot of issues with crown balls are big. What's that? It's agrobacterium that can be in the vine and will create a gall through winter injury. Yeah. So it basically chokes off the vine. Right. And right. you can spread that from plant to plant. It can be in California and you'll never see it because <sighs> you're not getting cold enough for it ever to, you know, rear its ugly head. Whereas if we get plant material from the wrong nursery out there, they supposedly are checking for it, but they're not. I've heard many of these stories, by the way. Even in California, there are some nurseries that they're probably the same ones where they yep. give you plant material that's not appropriate for the site. Yeah. And they swear that it's good. Yeah, we had to learn a few lessons the hard way where we started figuring out, okay, we need very specific nurseries and we need to be buying our plant material two years in advance. Not right. just one year at It's like making sure we're going to get exactly the plums we want on the right root stop and that it's going to be ready for us when we want. It's important everywhere, but where you are, it's just too risky, it seems. You have 200 acres total? Just a little under that. We'll be at 300 in four years. Wow. So. Yeah, it's pretty big. That's a lot to manage. Big for the area. Obviously, there's a lot of regions that it's small, but I mean, that's been our goal for a long time. We have all this land that's planted in cherries. We've just been ripping them out, planting in areas every year. We're trying to plant ahead of, of our need because that it's by far the most limiting factor to growing in this area. And so we recognize that fact that like, yeah, we don't need it now, but let's start planting five years in advance and let's grow to basically catch up to it. Where are all the cherry farmers going? Most of them are aging out because the, the people the still kids like don't cherries. Want. Yeah, the younger generation doesn't want it, or they're getting converted to like high density apples. Okay, uh, so that's one thing. Or honestly, we're trying to keep it in ag, and we're trying to turn it into stuff for us. I mean, there's a couple of bigger cherry families around here that will stay because they're so diverse. They're just they're always going to be strong. But there's a lot of little ones that just can't sustain. I mean, it would be a shame because I think Michigan is definitely known for having really good cherries. So it'd be sad if they were all gone. I really hope you're loving the show. I love learning about new places that I had no idea were so cool. And I'm telling you, the wines of the Lelanau Peninsula, at least of Good Harbor and Aurora, are well worth your time. This is a really cool conversation. I obviously enjoyed it and had lots of fun. I hope you're enjoying listening to it. The other thing that you're going to enjoy 
if you have not checked them out, is wine access. Listen, normal wine people, we all want a good deal. We all want really great wines. We want to find things that maybe we can't find locally. Maybe we want to wow our guests when they come over. Wine access is the key to that. They are amazing at customer service. They have a team of professionals that goes all around the world, has great supplier relationships in every country. These are excellent wines. Just sign up for the daily email, check it out, go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. You'll get 10% off your first order and they have amazing educational materials. I could go on and on. The customer service, the quality of the wines, the general standards that they hold themselves to. But once you get on the site, you're going to see it automatically. I don't partner with people I don't believe in, and they really believe in us too. So please go to them today if you haven't been to wineaccess.com. And if you want to join the wine club, wineaccess.com slash normal. This shipment coming up is going to be all wines from podcast guests who many of you love and always say, oh, I got to get these wines, Serge Doré. We have six wines and all of them are from Serge's collection. He and I have selected them just for you. So if you want in on that, go to wineaccesswineacces.com slash WFMP. Do it today. Hey, you know what? Wine Access is great supporters of us, but without Patreon, we can't continue to do this podcast. So we give a huge shout out to all the patrons and we thank you if you're thinking about joining and you decide to take the leap. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wine for normal people is how you can join the community. It's fun. We have great discussions. That's where I post all of the materials that might be interesting to you about wine, all the dorky details, all of the inside dirt about the podcast. If this is something that you're interested in, join today for $20 a year. That's like a week of Starbucks. You can be part of this community and just know that you're really supporting this podcast and we really appreciate you. So patreon.com slash wine for normal people. And don't forget to check out the classes on our fabulous new website made by Five Forest, wineforormalpeople.com slash classes. Now let's get back to this really cool show with Drew Perry from Good Harbor and Aurora Cellars. All right, let's talk about you and how you wound up getting into this crazy thing. I have to assume that you're growing up in Michigan and you weren't like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going <laughs> to go to the Leland Al Peninsula and I am going to become a winemaker. How did you fall into this? It's mostly because of uh, of my father. He um, ended up becoming the head of horticulture at Michigan State University. Oh, wow. He lived outside of East Lansing in a town called Hazlitt. He was actually studying apples and cherries and rootstocks. And so obviously I always kind of had that in my brain and in my background. So I was always surrounded by this stuff, but always saying, no way, no way, no way am I going to do this. I mean, I just grew up in a neighborhood and it's not like I grew up on an orchard. The other thing, though, he had in his background was he actually did his PhD research. He went to Texas A&M for his PhD and did grape growing. His PhD was based around proving that you could grow grapes for winemaking in Texas. Was it the Hill Country? He helped him see Hoff start. They worked with him on how to plant their first vineyard. You know, he was always excited about that, but then he got into other stuff. But he always loved wine, winemaking, so it was always around me. I wouldn't say I, I grew up European, but it was the kind of thing if they had wine for dinner and I, and I wanted something that wasn't frowned upon. And so it was always vaguely there in the background and sort of a part of my life. Come college and I was pre-med, 
which means undecided. But science well, undecided, as opposed yeah, to pre-law, which would be like artsy undecided. Yeah, I am scientifically uncertain. That was not going so hot <laughs> at Michigan State University. I hit a point where I was still not sure what I wanted to do, and I got a job at the research winery there because a friend I was playing soccer with happened to work there and was doing his PhD work there. So oh. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I can, you know, if I can get a job there, I can help you with your PhD research and, you know, just kind of collect some stats and whatever it is you're doing. And I, it was actually through that that I finally started meeting people who were in that viticulture and analogy research at Michigan State. I started realizing that they're not the same people I always associated with horticulture. Right. They were very different. And they were not what I thought of when I thought of wine and wine people. I had no idea what wine people were, but these were not the people that I thought I was going to be meeting. And so I was like, okay, this is actually interesting. These people are very cool. They're they're clearly intelligent. They're driven. Like I like this. And so Michigan State had a bit of culture and novelty program. Problem is nobody knew about it. I did because it was underneath horticulture. Okay, got it. There you go. Yeah. And so, uh, how many people were in the program though? It couldn't have been that big at the time. Oh no, no, we graduated a total of four people. What is it now? It must be pretty big now. Oh, it's dead. What? <laughs> My father actually canceled the program while I was in it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah, luckily, I was far enough along. I was still able to graduate. In all honesty, I think he was pressured to, he never admitted this, but he, I think he was pressured to cancel it earlier, but I was already in it. Right. So he was able to keep it going just long enough for me to finish. Thank goodness. There were some people in it, but people weren't finishing. So it's like they go off for an internship and then they just keep doing internships or just, they just wouldn't come back and they wouldn't finish it. And so they didn't really market it either. Michigan State doesn't have quite the same relationship with its wine industry a Davis does with now. There is a ops of money pouring into the research. The people there who are doing the research are doing the research to keep publishing and to get tenure. They're not as worried about the industry. So you finish this thing up, right? They canceled the program. You're going to be a unicorn alum here. You're uh-huh. one of four. What was the plan? Was the plan, okay, I'm going to go to Texas or I'm going to go to Napa? Where was your brain at this point? Probably not necessarily in Michigan to start, was it? It was mostly in a lot of panic, uh, <laughs> more than anything. So you're done. And, and the one thing is I ended with going out to Napa, um, out to Pine Ridge. Nothing there we did applied whatsoever to here. But uh-uh. it's experience. It helps get your foot in the door and it helps you get you familiar with kind of conceptually the environment that is like a real winery. After going there, it was sort of, I wasn't really sure because I did know the Michigan industry really well, just through a lot of the, the, the people who were in research and we would often go and visit the wineries. So I knew that it was growing and there was some potential there, but my first thought was, well, maybe I should try to see what's out in Napa or on the West Coast somewhere. And after a while, I kind of got to a point where I realized I could do that. But I really had this drive to come back because I did feel like Michigan was going to be something bigger than what it was. And I didn't want to just get swallowed up by the West Coast industry and be a nameless 
face there. It's so hard to make headway. I think also the viticulture is less challenging and winemaking yeah. is less challenging. At least, again, this is what I've heard from people who are in other places where it's yeah. very difficult to make wine. People go out to California and they're excited to do it. They go for a year or two and then they just say it's it's wonderful. It's easy. Yeah. There's lots of money. Yeah. But at the same time, there's not the creative challenge. Like the things that you were talking about with the vintage variation, yes, they're having more of it. But the things you have to think about each year, making wine in the climate that you're making wine, you would never, never have that anywhere, anywhere at any in any of the regions out there. And it takes a, a whole level of like kind of masochistic personality <laughs> that, uh, to really say this is what I want to do. Yeah, I, I always kind of do feel a little torn because I mean, I talk to people who are like, oh, yeah, this, this person's a really great winemaker. He made this 94 point. Saran out wherever on the West Coast, and then I just sit here and think, you're supposed to do that. It's not as challenging. You know, obviously, that's not a slight on anyone who does that. It's it's more just, that's not what this is. That's not what wine is. I think the people that are making wine in really challenging regions and forging ahead, doing, you're basically a pioneer, because even though the first people set it up, from what you're describing, it was the start they cleared the land and they yeah. played around but you guys are the serious generation when you got back from napa what were you doing before you start because you didn't start till 2014 at simpson family estate i was with another winery one that had started up in traverse city okay it's a winery called left foot charlie i knew the <laughs> winemaker i know i, I knew the winemaker i like it i had a lot of respect because he was that next generation and there was this very defined next generation. And those are the ones that really got things going. I really took that next job. But there was still a lot of work to do. And so I, I had a lot of respect for him. And when I found out he was breaking off on his own, to start his own thing, I wanted to, to join up with him. I was making wine with him for eight years. It was like a custom crush operation. I mean, this will be my 19th-ish harvest. Oh my gosh. Um, all I've really ever done since leaving or he was doing custom crush. I work with the core brand and then I work just with vineyards. Still today, you're saying? Yep, yep. That's still yeah. what we Yeah, I left in 14, came on board with Sam and Taylor. I actually went to school with Sam. So I've known Yeah, them. talk I've about their family. And you already mentioned Bruce, who he went to Davis and yeah. learned stuff that yeah. will not apply at all in Michigan, but was still probably pretty interesting. Well, and oh, then- yeah. That everyone actually came to him trying to figure out how to do this. He was the the one knowledge resource early on. It took a while for people to just kind of start following a new way of doing things. It took MSU changing hands as well. They needed to get a new fine physiologist in-house because he was the one who was pushing nonstop hybrid hybrids, which are great unless you can do vinifera. Bruce was doing that for a long time. Yes, yeah, so I went to school. Sam was there. Sam was in the program at the same time as me, but he didn't finish. Ah. He went on finance, which was a much better decision. <laughs> I am super niched to the point. I, I am not qualified to do anything else. That's okay. You're doing what you should be doing then, yeah, right? Yeah. Sam is a pretty brilliant mind, you know, even though he's my best friend, you know, he, his mind is insane when it comes to finance. So that's partially why I really wanted to work with them. We'd always talked about it possibly happening. It was probably about a month before Bruce passed away. I met with Bruce and Sam for dinner. Now, I figured it was just another family dinner. I'm coming over. We're just going to have some drinks. And basically, 
Bruce put his hand down and said, all right, I want to talk about you coming on board. Take one more year, and then I want you to come on board, and I want you to take over. Wow. And then a month later, through a bunch of complications, he was on good health. He ended up passing away. That all got put on hold. How old were Taylor and Sam, who now run the company? 22. Taylor would have been 28, she's my Taylor was working for a wine distributor, and Sam had gone off to General Mills for a finance position. Their dad passes away, and they say, all right, it's time to come back and help family business. When they first came back, they looked at the books and realized, this thing's hemorrhaging. We got to keep it afloat. It's a few years of keeping it afloat until they decided to take that next big move, which was buying Aurora Cellars and then bringing me on. So they needed to kind of get things stable before they could actually start evolving. And just to remind everybody, 2014 and 2015 were horrible vintages. I was waiting to say this. That's the year you started. (laughs) Um, You're lucky they trusted you. Sam and Taylor have always been family, so it actually works out really well. Sam took over along with Taylor. All they had were hybrids and a little bit of Riesling. And so they had ripped out, I want to say around 30 acres of grapes. That's really all that there was. They started replanting and we no longer have any hybrids. We just kind of identified what works, what works for us and then where we want to see our brands grow. Let's talk about the two brands that you manage for them. Good Harbor and Aurora. What is the difference between the brands? I've tasted wines from both of them. They're both great. I know you've gotten tons of accolades for it. I never read reviews before, but the minute that I opened the Good Harbor Pinot Grigio, we were like, that is a really great wine. Well, that's Pinot Grigio for you too. Actually, I remember a long time ago when I started off with Brian uh, Leftfoot, he was like, what is your goal as a winemaker? No, I think my goal is to make the world's greatest Pinot Grigio. He's like, what? Why don't you want to do that? And I'm like, you know, it's kind of like being the world's best handball player. There's a chance I could do it. You know, there's not that many people putting that kind of effort into it. I got a shot. Certainly the best American Pinot Grigio. Everyone talks bad about it. I'm like, in all reality, yes, it's difficult to make it a dynamic and interesting wine. But you can coax more out of it. The amount of work you're going to put into it to get more out of it might not translate into people really understanding it. But to me, it's worth it. To me, it's fun to put in that work and and try to get just a little bit more out of it. But in general, Good Harbor, Aurora. Good Harbor is the original. The original. Mm-hmm. We're obviously six family estates, so sort of the umbrella. But the big difference there is, I think some people that thought it was like a high-end versus like a low-end kind of thing. It's not that at all. It's just different portfolios and highlighting different areas. And that's really all it is. In the Good Harbor, you do a Pinot Noir Zweigelt. That makes sense, but nobody does that. You're doing reds for both brands. Aurora Sparkling, the Blanc de Blanc, is an outstanding wine. You've had to procure all of the stuff to do. You do Charmat, right? For, yep. Did they do sparkling when you got there? No. Did you know how to make sparkling wine when you got there? <laughs> <laughs> um, I had done small amounts of Methogep and wine. Never done that. Luckily, there was... One one guy in the area, his name was Larry Malti, who was the only bubbly producer in the region. The old thing used to be you'd make a base wine and you'd send it off to Larry to finish it. He had too many clients and his prices were skyrocketing. Luckily, Larry also happens to be Sam's godfather. So 
we talked to them about it. Right? Like, hey, look, we can't keep doing this. We need full control and we need to make do this and do it affordably. And so luckily consulting with him, a few trial and error days with him, you know, just kind of learn how to do it, figure it out. And honestly, I'm not going to say we figured it out by any means, but after a few explosions and uh, whatnot, <laughs> that's some exciting days, you figure it right. out. We got the tanks. We just realized we're going to be this fully integrated thing that we want to be. We need to be able to do everything. We can't be sending stuff off. We need to be able to put our own touch on everything. So I, I want to be able to shape the vineyard, to get that fruit in, make my decision as to how I want to process it. And then I want to be able to choose how I'm going to do that secondary. I guess you make some of the same varietals for Good Harbor and Aurora, right? Yep. You have a Cabernet Franc from Aurora, I think is also fascinating. Do you do barrel age on that? Yeah. You're basically using every tool in a winemaker set to mm-hmm. do everything. You have to be incredibly skilled at what you do to be able to make such a diversity of wines. For the Pinot Grigio, it tastes like minerals. It's incredibly terroir-driven. Yeah. It tastes unlike any other Pinot Grigio that you'll have. The Blanc de Blanc from Aurora, I think, is so fresh and bright. The Cabernet Franc from Aurora and the Pinot's Weigelt from Good Harbor, where you're growing reds, yeah. which they are cooler climate reds, but you're still getting good flavor out of them. And so then you have to change your mindset and then work on those, which is just a completely different skill set. And I bet that the vineyard work for the Reds is just, it's got to be crazy. It is. Luckily, we've gotten to the point where we mechanize so heavily and we have a good crew that it's fairly easy. Well, we've figured out the majority of our vineyards, what's going to work, what isn't. We still do some tweaking to some extent. But we don't go too crazy when it comes to veneer. I mean, we're just trying to make sure we're not cropping to such an extent that it's unrealistic. You know, we're not doing like one and a half tons or one ton per acre, you know, in order to ripen things. We're still trying to get a reasonable crop out of everything. People talk about sustainable viticulture. We need sustainable culture. We need to be able to have a business that makes sense. We need everyone in every avenue to be on, on top of their game, whether it's in the vineyard, whether it's in finance, marketing, winemaking, everything. We need to be able to create a culture that's healthy for everyone. You know, obviously that starts with healthy vines and that goes then into the winemaking and making sure you have a good team that you can support everyone and you can have a business that's sustainable. Right. Along with, you're not making unrealistic sacrifices in the vineyard. We try to have the best practices possible, but it is just about making sure that what we do can be realistic and can be scalable and that we can maintain quality at the same time. So we're trying to find that balance of like, we're, we're not going to do things that are so crazy where we're going to make this fruit be so expensive that we can't do this rationally. We need to make sure that we get the best quality possible. Comes a red, it's a pain. I can't imagine. I think one of the things that I've heard, and we've already sort of addressed this is, and I'm just going to be super honest with you. A lot of the listeners who have tried Michigan wines, because I've brought it up before, you're the first producer. This is the first show on Michigan I've ever done is just how uneven the quality is. So if you go wine tasting in the Leelanau Peninsula or Old Mission, the vast majority will be not great with a couple of really good ones. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, Finger Lakes used to be like that. Virginia is still like that. 
a lot of the emerging regions are like that. You have people who are like the pillars, like you guys, who where you're going to go and have a good tasting experience. There's not going to be any wine that's going to be heinous. But you know, because I'm sure you taste your neighbor's wines, right, that there's going to be some uneven quality. As you are building a sustainable business, one of the bigger problems is that everyone else around you is also making the reputation of the region. And although there are some really good producers, there's also the risk of people not doing great stuff, not really knowing what they're doing and making the reputation not so good. If I come up to Michigan and I don't know you and I can't call you, yeah. how do I figure out where to go? Do I look at the wine and spirits ratings? I mean, <laughs> there are some sources of accolades out there and there are being wine writers, obviously, here and there. Let's say you're already in the area, you're in Traverse City. It's a foodie town. And there's a lot of talented chefs and there's a lot of really good restaurants with some amazing wine. And there's some really good wine shops. And so uh, there's people who know so you wine. Look at, look at who's carrying what and then you can figure yeah, it out. There are people yeah. who know wine that are accessible that are a great resource. Yeah, okay. But I mean, obviously a lot of people what they'll do is they'll take tours, which are going to just hit spot for spot for spot. Whether it's that something happens where, you know, maybe you hit a wine that's a little bit older because they haven't caught up in vintage yet, or winemaker got a little bit too experimental. Or the site is not good. Look, you're being yeah. very kind, but sometimes you're in an emerging region. There's going to be mistakes, you know? It's just yeah. it, it's just the way it is. And some people will not make it. And, and you know, we, we wrestle with that. I mean, unfortunately, I would say Taylor wrestles with that more than anyone as she's on the board of all sorts of different trails trying to promote. There does come a point where you just have to do what we're doing here and try to just reach out and make sure that, hey, you can get people's attention to say, hey, this is what we're putting out there in the hopes that people are willing to take that. The other thing too is like if you're not tasting things in the area, it is difficult because you're tasting distributed one. That's a gamble unto itself. You guys are all DTC, right? You're only direct to consumer. We do distribute some, but it's a very select quantity that we distribute. And I know it's like that with everyone in the region. And sometimes they're distributing stuff that wouldn't necessarily stand behind in terms of their brand. They just want a face on the shelf. And I understand that. And it it makes sense to some extent. But my goal as a winemaker is, as we sit here still young in this industry, is to hit that point where I can create a wine that's obtainable for like my uncle in California. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to create wine that is obtainable by everyone that doesn't require you to just come into the tasting room. I don't want it to be so exclusive that people don't get to try it. I think the direct-to-consumer model is awesome. Your wines are affordable. I completely stand behind your wines. I've taken up so much of your time. I'm going to ask you one last question, which is about the future of the region. You have seen so much. You've been around for 19 vintages and you're still young. You've got a lot ahead of you. What do you hope to see in the future of the region? If you could project out, what would you like to see happen? Do you want things to go faster? Do you hope that there's more recognition. Some people want to explode and be huge, and some people just want to be smaller and very high quality. What's your thought? That smaller and high quality, I want to hit a point where I want to be able to achieve that quality at 100,000 cases. Wow. It is possible. You're at 10,000 now, right? Or um, 20,000? Well, 
40 for everyone. You know, we're still looking to double in size, but there's absolutely no reason that we can't maintain that same quality of a 2000 case wire. If we're playing our car trade, if we are investing in technology and the right people and we're gaining efficiency across the board, I mean, at least personally for me, that's what I want to see. That's my goal. I mean, all honestly, I want to find that tipping point. What is the tipping point at which you can't do that anymore? And then I want to come back. <laughs> want to go a little too far and then maybe come back a little bit. I want to get to where we're going fast while I am still young-ish while my body and brain could still handle it so that I could relax at the end of the day. But until then, I'm good with go, go, go. Just getting to where we want to be. We want to be able to really grow what we're doing so that eventually I can freaking relax. <laughs> it sounds like it's a long ride and it's stressful it every is. single year. I mean, you are on pins and needles every year, not knowing what's going to happen given where you are. Yeah. In regards to this, and then I promise this is the last follow-up. I always think that in the emerging regions, there's kind of like a band of people that Maybe. often get together, like the top producers. Yep. Is there any of that going on? Like the camaraderie among the top producers that have taken the lead that could drive that? Or do you feel like you guys are alone because you're bigger? Or It's a little bit of yes and no. I used to be very intent on that. We would have these winemakers tastings where all the winemakers would get together, blind taste everything, and it would be feeling constructed. Kind of lost its constructive nature after a while. And same kind of things with owners. We're at a point where there's definitely a few leading the charge, and we do rely on each other. In terms of the long term of the industry, really the best thing for it is going to be that these wires are doing well and are smart. That they keep growing doesn't mean that the, the small and boutique ones go away, but there's a lot of unsustainable middle ground. And so I think we really need to see a lot of success and growth out of those medium sized wineries so that we can start to represent the region wider. I mean, we do definitely have a, a pretty good network. I've gotten a little more tired, so um, I don't. <laughs> I don't socialize as much with the rest of the industry as I used to, but uh, it, it is, it's still an important aspect to our region. Yeah, and small. especially the people doing good work because you can drive success from each other's and do really great things together. This is so interesting. I can't wait to come up and see you. Again, I've been hearing about it for at least 10 years for the listeners. I mean, Taylor just reached out to me and yep. I said, send me the wines and if they're good, we'll do the show. And here yes. we are. So cool. I'm really grateful for your time. I really appreciate you educating all of us on the Leelanau Peninsula, on Michigan and on some of these interesting things that are going on and the challenges that you have. I think some of the hardest viticulture is sometimes the most interesting. As wine lovers, we can really appreciate the hard work that you're doing. 19 years and still going. And it's unbelievable that you're only 25. That's just, that's really, no, really right? crazy. You're, you're the prodigy. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening. And we will catch you next time. <laughs>